Every journey begins with a question. Our journey begins with this one. How can we lead to make the world better? Here, we explore that question through journeys of great success and accomplishment, confronting challenges and overcoming obstacles with leaders from around the globe, whose experience covers a vastly diverse range of background, sector, role, and expertise. One common thread unites them all. They are all leaders striving to make the world better. They are all better world leaders. Welcome to Better World Leaders. And today, welcome to a conversation with someone who has been described as a pracademic, a possibilist, and a poet. A rather unusual combination. A pracademic, an academic who is very practical and pragmatic in the theories and the application of those theories. A possibilist, really a reframing of optimism in terms of focusing on what is possible and how we can get there and how we can achieve what they perceive to be possible. And a poet, you know, someone who is steeped in creativity as much as they are in pragmatic theory. Welcome very much to the conversation with Wayne Visser. And as I do, I invite you through this dialogue to explore what it might be like to be thriving. Thriving. Our life is so much more than a duty or a chore of merely getting by without a why or what for, the law of tooth and claw, the struggle to exist, to rally and resist against life's slow decay, the way of entropy, of living just to see another day, to stay, to endure and survive. No, life is meant to thrive. In nature, all things grow from seed to tree. We know the cycle of living through giving, of reap and sow the flow. Things come and go, the cycles of grooming from sprouting to blooming, of stretching for the light, the bright palette of hope, the diverse ways to cope, to cherish and flourish, bursting forth and alive from nature means to thrive. Society lives too, a melting pot we brew from cultures and crises with spices for flavor and kindness to savor, ideas for conceiving and goals for achieving that stretch us and bind us, that find us together in all kinds of weather, wanting what's fair to care, longing to love and strive for society to thrive. The markets live and breathe in complex webs we weave. The synapses of trade have made the things we need, each deed a chance to lead. While tech is getting smart, yet still it needs a heart, a compass as a guide to tide us through the storm and find a better norm, a breakthrough to renew, an innovation drive. Yes, markets too can thrive. All life is meant to rise, to reach up to the skies, to move beyond the edge, to fledge with hopeful cries. Life tries until it flies. It shakes and spreads its wings and trills each note it sings. 
while given time and space, the race of life is run, full powered by the sun, on land, in seas like bees, sweet nectar from the hive, all life is made to thrive. It is such an absolute honour to, well, have read that myself and now to listen to you read it. So thank you very much and welcome, welcome indeed to the Better World Leaders podcast, Wayne Visser. Thank you very much. Great to be here. So we have much thriving to do in this conversation and much thriving to discuss. So we are going to jump right in. But before we do that, let's just spend a couple of moments to place ourselves in the world and to place our context with uh, my invitation for you to share a little bit of where you've come from to join us here. So if you could please just share with our audience where in the world you are today. Today I'm in Norfolk in the United Kingdom in England and uh, we're just coming out of winter. I'm surrounded uh, fortunately by uh, lakes and uh, forests but also by agro agriculture, industrial agriculture uh, which is uh, less than thriving. So uh, I'm living a contradiction which I guess we all are today in the world of paradox. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Very aptly put. And as I shared with you before we hit record, there were a number of nostalgic triggers as I read your work and uh, specifically your place-based references to to where you are now, because I grew up not so many miles away from you, not being a farmer, but living in the farmhouse uh, surrounded by hundreds of thousands of acres of monocultured crops in Suffolk. So yeah, I I can very much visualise the scene that you see. And I myself am uh, also, like you, somewhat relocated from the land of my birth as I stand here on the the land of the Woody Woody people in uh, southern New South Wales in Australia. So we're both migrants in in a somewhat familiar land, I imagine. Yes, exactly. Although aren't we all migrants? I'm not sure there's anyone or very few that are truly Indigenous in today's world. And uh, so... It's good. It's good to move and to experience the world. And uh, it's one of the delights I've had in my life, uh, traveling to more than 75 countries just to soak up the culture and experience around the world, including your wonderful country of Australia. So how much of your you know, sort of story of knowing, being and doing would you like to share just with anybody in our audience who you know, hasn't you know, sort of Googled you and spent some time in any of your spaces before they've tuned into this? Well, I think it's important to know that I characterize myself as a pracademic, a practical academic, uh, because most of my life has been spent uh, in the applied world of working for and with business as well as in the academic world, uh, I run uh, Cambridge's uh, business sustainability management uh, online course. I've been research director there and I have other academic hats that I wear, but my experience is mainly uh, working with business. I set up and ran KPMG's sustainability services and ran that for a number of years in South Africa. I worked for Capgemini as a strategy analyst before that. And interesting, perhaps, to know that uh, I got involved in sustainability really in the lead up to when it all kicked off, which was the Rio Earth Summit of uh, 1992. And in the lead up to that, I joined other students from around the world. I was a business student from Cape Town University 
And we got together in Japan, in Tokyo, and we put together our youth response to this upcoming Earth Summit. And uh, we were very optimistic. We thought these were serious problems, but could easily be solved by uh, having some attention put on them. And here we are more than 30 years later. My whole career has been working in this space. And as I'm sure we'll dive into, I'm uh, optimistic about uh, what is possible right now at this moment after more than 30 years uh, of pursuing the sustainable development agenda. I was at high school when the Earth Summit occurred. And yeah, I mean, I can I can still remember the build-up, you know, the... Um, yeah, it's just kind of just were we pre-internet still? Yeah, nine. Yeah, so so you know there was you're waiting every day, you know, for the news reports and and you know you're sort of reading whatever might be circulating, you know, in the in, in the mainstream, yeah, you know, sort of media channels about it. But yeah, you know, I can remember you know, not exactly tenterhooks, but certainly paying, you know, sort of daily vigilance as to what was happening. Well, it was a remarkable event, right? It yeah. was the largest gathering of heads of state. I think it still still may be. We had more than 150 heads of state at that meeting. So it, it really gave a lot of uh, hope to us as young people to say, hey, the world is really focused on these things now. The frustration came later, of course, with uh, the lack of progress that we've also had uh, in, in many areas of sustainable development. And, uh, you know, now we start to see an acceleration, which gives us hope again. There's just, just one more term that I that I really really like us to explore. So you know, by all means, pick up the ball now, or uh, you know, sort of kick it down the road a little bit, and, and and we'll come to it. But you know, it was it was a term that really jumped out of the prologue for thriving, which is the possibilist, which uh, I think, uh, along with your uh, pragademic, is uh, is is a very fitting term for certainly everything that I've received from from having reviewed. You know the book that there's, there's so much possibility in there, and it's it's a question that I tend to ask at the start of every year, just simply what is possible. Yeah, it's a it's a really valuable perspective, and I can't claim credit for that one. Uh, that uh, was coined by Hans Rosling, the great uh, statistician working in health, who has got that fantastic book called Factfulness, which I recommend to everyone. But he really, he really coined that and said, uh, because he was asked uh, once, is he an optimist or a pessimist? And in his uh, typical Scandinavian response, he, he said, uh, I'm neither of those because those are emotional states. I'm a possibilist. So, uh, I, you know, I believe that if we work together and we, um, you know, focus on problems that uh, a better world is possible. And uh, that's where I am. And so I write a lot in the book, as you know, about uh, optimism and hope. But I don't want anybody to confuse that with blind optimism or with uh, sticking our heads in the sand. Rather, I also cite the Stockdale paradox, which is an uh, uh, American admiral who, uh, who survived uh, in a prisoner of war camp. He said, what you have to do to survive is confront the brutal facts of your reality in as much detail as possible, but never give up that hope that things can change and can get better. And that's really the attitude we need now in the world today. Yeah, it's really interesting. I've read Viktor Frankl's work many years ago and had been familiarized with Admiral Stockdale's experience more recently, but 
both prior to very visceral experience of our own uh, ecological trauma here in the area where I live through the uh, what is now called the Black Summer Fires in Australia. What's been interesting to me about it's not, of course, you know, a, a, a uniform experience. Everyone's is unique, but seemingly the unison experience of the vast majority of the communities here has really been to lean into that experience, um, to not flee, not move away. I don't know a single person who's moved away from this area because of the fires. Um, a lot of people sold property that they were holding as investments or holiday homes, but anyone who lives here has actually really kind of lent into it. And it's been a, a cohesive event, especially the communities that you know, have you know, been dealing with bereavement and grief and, you know, significant adaption and resilience challenges as a result of, of a real um, challenge. Uh, but it's something I speak to in my own um, speaking arrangements, which I did recently, and I'm still a little bit triggered by that experience. But um, yeah, you, you have to take a view that you have a role to play, things can improve, but not shy away from the reality that, you know, we're moving through on a daily basis. Yeah. Victor Frankl actually has been one of my inspirations for many, many years. I discovered him uh, also as a, uh, an undergraduate student and ended up using his work extensively in my doctoral research, which was about why do we spend our time and effort and energy on trying to solve the world's problems, uh, especially for those of us who work in the area of sustainability, of social justice, of uh, all of these issues. And of course, uh, Frankl in Man's Search for Meaning, having survived four Nazi concentration camps, distilled the essence of the ability not only to survive and, but to thrive, which is to have a clear sense of meaning or purpose. And that's been a guide in my life personally, but we see it more and more being a, a North Star in professional life as well for business. We see the emergence of uh, the importance of purpose uh, as opposed to just profit. And, um, you know, it's it's one of the things that I think, again, gives us hope because uh, that that is really changing people's uh, view of the world. Having something to believe in is one of the most powerful motivating forces that can get you through anything. Yeah. Hundred percent. There's so many um, lines of work that, that that we could explore, but I, I'm going to be diligent and uh, you know sort of stick to at least the the, the loose framework that uh, that we've mapped for this conversation. So a little bit of a shift, but not a tangential one. I hope a progression from where we stand now. Let's talk about thriving. You know, let's talk about this this construct that you've been developing these past few years, and really at a high level. In your view, what is thriving and why do we need it? Yeah, well, the good thing is that I think thriving is intuitively something that people understand. To thrive means to flourish. It means to, you know, to go beyond simply surviving and to prosper. Why it's important is because having spent more than 30 years working with this concept of sustainability it hasn't really got us there. It It's failed, if we want to be brutally honest. And one of the reasons I think it's failed is because it's boring, uh, because it's not inspiring. I mean, if I asked you, what's your marriage like? Is it sustainable? 
I mean, that, that's not, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's it's, not, it's, it's, I, don't, don't answer that, but uh, that's yeah, not, yeah. <laughs> you know, that's not what we strive for in life, in relationships. What we strive for is something positive, something more than just surviving. And if we look at the concept of sustainability, it is the ability to sustain ourselves. That's simply to continue. And of course, that also allows us to abuse the term. So we hear things like sustainable economic growth. And so it's got us a long way down the road. But back to the the idea of having a purpose, what we need is something more now to inspire people. And that's why this concept of uh, net positive or of thriving or regeneration, I think, is uh, is the next wave that we need to surf. Because if you strive for for something more, then you're more likely to make rapid progress to get there. If you shoot for the stars, you may hit the moon. Uh, if you don't, you may just stay on Earth. So that that's really the idea is that we need to up the game because so many of the challenges we face have over the past 30 years got worse, not better. It's a paradox because we've had more focus and activity on tackling some of those problems on business, especially bringing on board sustainability, starting to publish reports and have sustainability managers, you name it. And yet, you know, uh, the climate crisis gets worse. Uh, the biodiversity crisis gets worse. Inequality is still uh, very much uh, uh, a problem and in fact has been getting worse in almost every country. Gender equality uh, if we continue on ter- uh, current trends, it will take, uh, you know, more than 200 years to close the gender gap. So there are many issues that we simply are not keeping up with. We're, we're not, the solution is not at the scale and speed that we need compared to the problem. And that's why we need to up the game. And the way to up the game is actually not to try to scare or blame or guilt people into change, but rather to give them something inspiring to go after. And that inspiring thing is thriving because we intuitively understand what it means to thrive as people, to thrive as communities, as cities, as societies, and for nature to thrive. Yes, yes, yes. And I think this is my uh, you know, sort of immediate perfunctory response. The nostalgic analogy that I'll give is as a seven-year-old child moving from southern England up to Suffolk. And yeah, we I had sort of a suburban early childhood. So moving to these really expansive terrains was was really eye-opening and, and well, sense it was a sensory awakening on every level. But within a decade, I could already recall and you know, pay witness, which is, you know, I'm sort of borrowing from from some of your language here, to the changes. You know, I I, I watched the sort of final stages of the transformation of the Suffolk landscape from what hadn't really changed that much since probably, you know, kind of Saxon times in terms of small plot agriculture, abundant biodiversity, hedgerows everywhere, you know, lots of very, very, you know, place-based, you know, economies. And, you know, all of a sudden out came the hedgerows, in filled went the ditches and, you know, the, the farmhouse that my parents bought had employed 40 people. I think they had 40 people in 1938 
And by 1987, when my parents bought it, the farm was employing one person full time. And, and yeah, this is the, this is the story the world over. So the opportunity that I see is to, you know, start to remake some of these systems and institutions and places and ways of, you know, sort of interacting with our world. But again, to sort of recall one of your points, you know, it, it's, it's not about sort of reverse migration. We're not going back to anything. We can't, even if we wanted to remake what was. What we absolutely do need to do, though, is to shift into something different and better, recognising everything that was, everything that is, and that we need to sort of combine them in a new way in order to reach this, this sort of state of hopefully perennial thriving. Well, that's the key, I think, is not to get stuck in the problem. And that's been my frustration, I guess, over the years, is that we've had so much focus on what's going wrong, what the challenges are. The data's got much better, of course, and that's important for confronting that reality. But we can't stop there. We can't be paralyzed. Uh, It doesn't help just to shout uh, louder about the problem. I think what we have to do is move into the space of solutions. And that's really what, what thriving is all about, is to say that we've reached a moment first where our understanding of what it means to thrive uh, is much better than it was in the, far, in the past because we have now a scientific under, um, under basis for that, a foundation for that, uh, the science of living systems uh, has, has come a long way in the last couple of decades. So we know the principles that we need to follow in order to uh, achieve thriving. But we also have um, a real bursting forth of innovation and a real shift, I think, in the perspectives both in uh, business, in policymaking, uh, and in society, in social movements, and these are uh, reaching a, a convergence, which is actually one of the principles of thriving, uh, where we will start to see tipping points, positive tipping points, uh, where we see accelerated change towards a different and a better world. One of the little quotes on my book uh, um, that's used in the promotion is the world, the future will be better than you think. Um, And that's not, again, just wishful thinking. That's based on an understanding of how complex systems change and seeing the signs of that change happening right now. No, I couldn't agree more. I have to say, I mean, I'm uh, sort of relatively late entrant um, into both climate and social justice movements. Um, But, yeah, already, you know, I sense a real just like ingrained apathy to, you know, the shock and awe tactics and, 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 and the, you know, here's the latest bad news. You know, and I've seen it firsthand. You know, I've seen, you know, what the worst of these uh, ecological breakdowns look like. But what I visualise and what's drawn me into these movements is really to understand more about the solutions. <laughs> I mean, that's what, that's what drew me to Paul Hawkins' work, um, was that when, when I sit down with people who are, completely and utterly aware of the direction that we're moving in at the moment the consistent question is what can we do and who can we partner with 
right? And whether these are people in community, people in business, you know, entrepreneurs, CEOs of corporates, doesn't matter. Those two questions have, have been the most uh, consistent, most pertinent, and largely the most unanswered until relatively recently, uh, which again is, is is why I see you know your work and you know the work of the two, two Pauls that um, you know you, you, Paul Paulson's um, net positive and Paul Hawkins' um, well first drawdown and, and more recently regeneration work. I think the, these are all the building blocks of showing what is possible now during the transformation and once the transformation is you know well progressed i mean it's probably never going to end it will be a perennial cyclical transformation right but uh, this is what we now need to talk about so request could you give us a, a synopsis of uh, sort of the key you know sort of foundational elements of thriving as you map out uh, in your book and, and then we can pick some of them and do do a bit of a deeper dive yeah so at a high level uh Thriving is really about four things. It's about how we move from breakdowns in society and nature to breakthroughs, how we move from solutions to synergies, which is the innovation piece, how we move from inspiration to integration, which is the implementation, and how we move from uh, laggards to leaders. And I'm sure we'll dive into some of those in more detail. The underlying principles of thriving, I think, are extremely important. This is the science of living systems. And this gives us a clue to uh, what we need to do or what we need to look for in change uh, to make thriving happen. And so I'll just mention them uh, and then I'm sure in the conversation we might uh, elaborate on them in some more detail. Uh, but the first is, is complexity. So we have to understand the interconnectedness. In fact, all of life is about relationships. In fact, at a scientific level, it's all relationships. There actually is nothing in between in a way. Even our bodies has have more microorganisms that are not part of uh, our own uh, body uh, and makes up who we are. So complexity is understanding the interconnections and the patterns. The second principle is circularity. Of course, we know in nature, everything is cyclical, everything recycles in terms of energy, in terms of materials. And that's the second principle. The third is creativity. So again, in, in nature, in societies, what we see is innovation constantly but it comes as a result of diversity, of flexibility in the system, and of having permeable boundaries. So there, there are no hard boundaries in nature. Even a cell wall, a membrane, allows materials to pass uh, between. And in fact, uh, if I use this moment just to cite another person who has informed my thinking uh, uh, Jan Smuts, who was a statesman, a prime minister of South Africa. In fact, uh, around the time when Mahatma Gandhi was there, uh, they crossed swords. Uh, but uh, he was also a philosopher and, and, a, and a scientist, and he wrote a book called Holism and Evolution, uh, which is probably, I still think, one of the earliest uh, descriptions of what we now call uh, the theory of living systems. And one of his observations was that creativity always comes when we have overlapping fields. 
Uh, and you can think of this in terms of um, interdisciplinary or just in terms of mixing up different elements. Um, the, the fourth principle is coherence. So we have to have that higher purpose um, in order to uh, move a system in, in a unified direction. A little bit of interesting research that's come out here suggests that uh, to move a crowd, a collective, you only need between 5 and 25% of that crowd to have a common intention to move it in a particular direction. And those t- 5 to 25% don't even need to know who the others are. And so that's the power of coherence and purpose. The fifth principle is convergence. And this is when you get uh, what we technically technically call uh, positive feedback loops. This is just means uh, that uh, certain trends and forces reinforce one another. And so we see that now with technology breakthroughs, with policy movement, with uh, social uh, uprising, things like the climate strike movement or um, uh, sort of uh, movements around social justice like uh, Black Lives Matter or the Extinction Rebellion, as well as then uh, what we see in terms of market response, right? Uh, no, uh, no coincidence that uh, Tesla is now a trillion-dollar company and that it has a social or an environmental mission at its heart. Uh, that's as a result of converging trends. And then the last one is continuity. We do need to design things that can survive in the long term, and we need to change our short-term focus to make sure that not only our organizations, but our civilization, our communities and, and our societies can survive in the long term. And we haven't been too good at that recently. So these are the underlying scientific uh, principles. Uh, I can come back and talk more about the six transitions, but perhaps I will just pause there for a reflection. No, thank you. I, I mean, th- th- this is what I've really enjoyed uh, about your your work. I mean, I'll, I'll describe it that way, even though the, my only exposure to it is this latest book. And just as a very brief uh, aside, because this occurred to me right before we came on air, but I've been you know, honoured to have uh, great conversations with a number of authors, but you are definitely the most published author that we have had thus far. If, uh, if we say that you've written, is it 40 books now? Yes, this is uh, number 41, actually. Yeah. Right. So, <laughs> so for me to say yeah. your work, I'm being extremely dismissive of this significant body, uh, but uh, yeah, I'll have to work my way through the catalogue. The good news is that they're not all long tomes, right? Some of them are, are books of poetry. Some of them are, there are a couple of fiction books in there. In fact, one you might uh, enjoy is, is about leadership. It's called uh, Follow Me, I'm Lost, the tale of an unexpected leader, which is uh, the tale of a Scottish goose that gets lost on his way to business school in London and ends up in Africa, traveling down through the continent, meeting strange characters and learning unexpected leadership lessons. Some of them are tomes. Huh? There's uh, a few sort of encyclopedic uh, books in there, the A to Z of Corporate Social Responsibility, the World Guide to Sustainable Enterprise, and so on, and everything in between. So yes, I enjoy, I enjoy writing. 
What I've really enjoyed, I will definitely check out the Scottish goose who ends up <laughs> in Africa. I'm certain that that actually appeared up, uh, appeared in one of my um, Amazon recommendations, of course, uh, at some point last year. What I really enjoy about this example of your work in this most recent book is you being those terms that you've described. This is a diverse blend of so many of those writing styles and anything that speaks to the future arguably is fiction, even when it's based on, you know, sort of hard scientific data that we have today. Right. So the book is dense, but it's very pliable. You know, there's a, there's a real playfulness as much as there is a a sort of a very, you know, kind of grab by the throat at times, you know, shake by the shoulders at others, you know, sort of call to action, you know, woven all the way through it. And then there is, a, you know, the, the real, um, you know, sort of emotional connection and priming that comes from creative writing and particularly poetry. So I'm not just trying to blow smoke up anywhere, you know, but it it is a unique work in my experience to have the aptitude and the ability to weave so many different streams of uh, writing uh, and education and uh, inspiration Um uh, together is uh, is uncommon and and you've absolutely nailed it so yeah i i really really enjoyed it i learned something uh, early on uh, from others uh when i wrote my first book which was called uh, beyond reasonable greed i wanted to get a forward from uh, one of the leading scenario thinkers uh of the day in south africa clem sunter he actually was very influential in helping south africa go from what could have been a civil war uh, into a negotiated settlement because he uh, he worked with scenarios, uh, a high road and a low road scenario. And I wanted him to write the forward to the book because he was also chairman of uh, Anglo-American Gold Division and then the Chairman's Fund. And uh, I was working for KPMG at the time and I had all this experience uh, I wanted to get out there uh, of having worked with companies on sustainability. So I sent him a draft and uh, he read it and he said, uh, you know, the first two chapters, rewrite the rest of the book like that. And uh, why was that? Because what I'd done is I'd introduced an analogy in the the first few chapters, which was uh, uh, using a wildlife metaphor. So we had lion companies and elephant companies and Lion companies were unsustainable. They were predators, extractive, if you like, and elephant companies were far more sociable and and, uh, uh, wise. And so I rewrote the book just with a whole analogy all the way through, and he ended up wanting then to be co-author, which he, he was in the end. And so that was an early lesson in the importance of being able to tell a story. And I have another sort of uh, literary hero, um, which is uh, Charles Handy, who was one of the original sort of management guru writers uh, over many, many decades. And I've loved his books, and I've been fortunate enough to meet him a couple of times as well. And uh, he actually read that first book as well, to my surprise, uh, when I went to meet him. And uh, his uh, he gave good feedback, and his advice to me was, he said, just always try to tell stories. And so I paid a lot of attention to that in my writing and especially in this book. 
and uh, even working with the editors of this book, you know, uh, it was to get them to check whether I'm telling enough stories because we're we're hardwired and softwired to respond to stories. So rather than fiction being a bad thing, I think it is about narrative and storytelling and even mythology of, of meta-narratives. And uh, that's what we respond to. And there are some really compelling stories to tell right now. And that's what the book tries to do. Yes, yes. And again, because yeah, this narrative has become uh, kind of primal in my own personal transformation and, and, and in, in, in a lot of the work that I do. And I think to kind of hop onto one of the lily pads, you know, that, that you've sort of provided uh, for us to sort of navigate, you know, complex, integrated, uh, highly connected topics here is we need a new, a new meta narrative. And, and the, you know, earlier podcast guest, uh, Claire Marshall, you know, who, who's uh, doing a lot of work in to futures in, in, in terms of uh, how the stories we tell kind of define the futures that we create. Um, this is one of the points that, that, that we discussed in that conversation, that there are a number of typical meta narratives and some of them are more common. Um, and the ones that we need to move towards are the ones which have been less obvious as as part of our uh, as part of our evolutionary and certainly um, civilized histories so let's pick again i don't want to dictate by any means but let, let's pick a couple of you know the elements uh, which are so significant in this uh you know this this construct of thriving and i i, I think those um you know the, do we want to go through the whole you know sort of six of six or do you want to sort of start by introducing those categories and and then we can break them down? I mean, I, we will get to leadership. You know, this is you know this is a platform for people who lead, striving to make the world better. We'll definitely dive into leadership, but I I, I think that there would be a benefit to sort of spending a bit more time in the in the landscape and terrain before we get to that particular point. Well, to pick up on your theme of uh, meta narratives. Uh, and then introduce the six transitions. I, I do think that we've had a failure of storytelling because what we've tried to do is to sell a change that is all about sacrifice, is all about giving things up. And it just doesn't work. It hasn't worked for 50 years. And so we have to change to this thriving narrative where it's about something better to move towards. We just got a new puppy. Uh, called uh, a Roxy. And one of the things you learn very quickly is if the, if you want to take something away from a dog, give it something juicier, right? And uh, and we, we need to learn this lesson as society. So what we see is, yes, there are six areas of breakdown, uh, two in each of uh, nature, society, and the economy. But with each area of breakdown, there are breakthroughs and there are market responses. So let's just map those quickly. In the area of nature, what we see is uh, we see the degradation of ecosystems and we see the depletion of resources. They're related, but not quite the same. And what we need in terms of breakthrough is the protection and restoration of ecosystems and the renewal of resources. And the market responses that we have there are the eco-services economy. So this is literally... Uh, being able to support nature in what it would normally do itself, whether that's climate regulation or water purification or pollination. So everything that helps that through the market to flourish. 
And then we need, uh, on the renewal side, the circular economy. Today, we're less than 10% circular in the world today. So we're basically throwing away 90% of the stuff that we extract and consume. And so uh, lots of exciting things happening in both of those areas uh, that we can celebrate. Those are the first two transitions. Uh, and so just uh, if you need to remember them, I have a thing with mnemonics and, and with alliterations throughout the book. So these all start with an R, right? So it's restoration and renewal. In the area of society, what we've got is disparity. In other words, inequality and discrimination. And uh, we've got also uh, disease, both physical and mental disease. And so what we need as a, as a counterforce is responsibility, which is all about diversity and inclusion and fair treatment in our organizations and in our society. Uh, and that's through the access economy. We have to make economic activity of all kinds more accessible. Um, and then on the health piece, of course, we want to go from disease to what I call revitalization, uh, and that's through the well-being economy. Again, wonderful breakthroughs happening uh, in health and well-being and in the area of fair and inclusive treatment. So we've got the second and the third and fourth two R's are responsibility and revitalization. And then in the area of, um, of the economy, what we've got is what I call disconnection because in terms of technology, not everyone has equal access to technology. We have what we call the digital divide. And it's actually getting wider, even though more and more people are getting access to the internet. With the fourth industrial revolution, uh, the others are racing ahead. And so the gap continues to grow. And what it does, in fact, is amplify and exacerbate the inequalities. So it's very linked to disparity. We've seen that even during the COVID pandemic. Those that are excluded, uh, both economically and technologically, are those that suffer the most. Uh, so uh, what we need to go, of course, to is, um, is to what I call rewiring, uh, which is really about using technology as a solution to the social and environmental challenges rather than as part of the problem. And we do that through the digital economy. Just a side note, there is a second kind of disconnection that's starting to happen, which is through automation. Uh, we are being replaced by machines and robots, and so there has to also be a response through the digital economy of reskilling and adapting and making sure we can all have a good career uh, despite all of those changes. Um, and then the, uh, the last one is really about disruption. And this is uh, the crises, the catastrophes that we face. Climate change is front and center there with hurricanes and droughts and floods and so on, um, uh, where, by the way, uh, you know, uh, every, every year there are hundreds of billions of dollars of losses of which only a third is insured. Um, and so what we've got here uh, besides climate is pandemics, industrial accidents, market crises. The response has to be resilience. How do we help societies to get through disruption, uh, to survive and thrive despite all of that? So the whole area of adaptation 
is very important here. And this is through the risk economy. So everything that helps us to deal with risk. So the final two R's are rewiring and resilience. So those are the transitions we have to make. And the, the great news is that when you start to go into those different economies, the market responses, there is a huge amount of innovation happening and scaling, uh, which is what was, has been missing for a few decades now. So technologies, for example, that are broken through, uh, like renewables, like electric vehicles, are scaling much faster than anybody uh, thinks or predicts, right? The International Energy Agency keeps getting it wrong, that their forecasts, because it's all happening much faster. So, you know, these things all combined, these six transitions are becoming self-reinforcing, amplifying uh, changes, which is why I'm so positive that uh, we can get to a thriving future. You made a suggestion and if you don't <laughs> if you're not comfortable with me saying this right now we'll just edit it out but what i'm holding right now is i really hope that you do run the podcast that you mentioned you're thinking about uh because I, I i could just listen to each of those being unpacked not at infinitum but you know for an extended period of time right i mean it it, it, it is a joy and a privilege to read the book but yeah to to yeah, I, I we need to get to leadership i know that but I could spend a good clean hour just diving right into each of those sort of duos with you um, because I, I get it and I'm living it, uh, you know, so, and, and on so many levels, you know, I think this is, you know, re, I mean, this is so many contexts around the world, but you're really speaking to the Australian context right now. You know, there is so much disparity yeah, there, there is there is this growing divide. So much of it invisible uh, to the majority of the population. There is so much lethargy around what is such an obvious opportunity in transition to all of these, and they're not even like spectacularly novel, you know, sort of industries. Uh, you know, a lot of them really have have been sort of well established, you know, for for decades at this point in time. But it's just them becoming more prominent than the sort of the old classics, which particularly here, you know, we have the whole fossil fuel industry. So the one that I'm really curious and, and would just love if we could spend, I don't know, maybe sort of 10 minutes or so on right now is resilience, because I think at this particular moment in time and, you know, moving into the third year of a pandemic, I think this is is really likely for most people to be a year where adaption and resilience really hits home if it hasn't already. So if it's okay with you, perhaps we can just unpack a little bit of, of, of what you think is, is needing attention in the resilience area. And then I think the obligation on us is to, to hop a, a little bit into the laggards to leaders and uh, you know, what's involved with that. And, and I know resilience is going to feature again in, 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 in terms of self-regeneration when we get to leadership. Uh, I am, I'm reading ahead a little bit here. Uh, so let, if we could, if that's okay with you, let's speak to resilience and then we can look at change and leadership. Yeah, well, I'm, I may very well uh, begin the podcast on thriving. Uh, what I am committed to do is to do a documentary film or a documentary series on thriving. Um, and uh, so I'm at the early stages of that. I, I do wonder sometimes how much people read books anymore. I'm glad to see a great stack behind you there, and uh, I do know that uh, I do know that people, uh, you know, engage with film uh, 
more and more. It's one of the reasons, by the way, that I did uh, the Closing the Loop documentary, which was the world's first feature-length documentary on the circular economy. And uh, we decided, uh, I worked with an Emmy Award-winning director to film that in Africa, Latin America, and Europe. And we ended up uh, deciding to release that, uh, open source it on YouTube, and it's now had about uh, 300,000 uh, views. So, um, you know, it it is a good way to go to try all these different formats to get the message out there. And, um, yeah, I think uh, there are so many, so many stories to tell. There are literally hundreds in the book and, and hundreds that I had to leave out. So, sure, let's uh, dive a little bit into resilience. Uh, we, we probably uh, know more about resilience today than we did three years ago before the pandemic, right? So the interesting thing about resilience is that it operates on, on multiple levels. So we need resilient individuals, we need resilient uh, organizations, resilient societies, and nature itself um, and needs to be resilient. Uh, I've actually worked uh, to create a, a little tool uh, for this together with the world's largest uh, human capital uh, or HR company, Runstat, we created the Future Resilience Index, which is a way to measure resilience across 10 dimensions uh, at this multi-level um, approach. So um, what's important with resilience, I think, is to know that it too has some very basic uh, principles that we can learn from and apply at all these different levels. And I won't go through all of them, but uh, for example, diverse diversity or diversification is one really important principle of resilience. The more diverse, whether that's people or investments, um, if we have the diversity, then we're less likely to be caught out by the crisis. Uh, in terms of you know diversifying, uh, let's say investments, of course, we understand that quite well because one sector might get hit. Or, or one uh, geography. Uh, it's closely related to decentralization, by the way. Um, so, uh, but also in people, right? Diversity in people means that we don't have groupthink when we're faced with big problems, which is what we have during crises. And so we're more likely to get creative solutions. So diversity, very important, or diversification. Decentralization as well, because the reason the internet doesn't go down everywhere at the same time is because it's decentralized and this is a this is a feature of nature nature itself is is decentralized and so um, the more that we can do that in the way that we create our social and economic systems the better as well as our uh, environmental systems if we have a food system that's just relying on uh, 10 big players in the world you know that's going to be less resilient than if we have you know, hundreds of thousands of small producers uh, all networked. Uh, the same principle goes for uh, generating power. If we're relying on a few big companies with a few big power plants in a few areas, much more vulnerable than if we have microgrids and microgeneration and renewable energy. So we can apply that principle as well. Um, there are a few others. Uh, so uh, having slack in the system is one that uh, people struggle with, but is also very important. So this is the idea of redundancy. And if you think about it, the last uh, 
let's say 50 years, what we've been doing is is getting more and more and more efficient. And so when we get a disruption like we've had with COVID or with the Icelandic volcano a few years ago, suddenly everything goes to a halt because we're used to just-in-time delivery and next-day delivery and all of those things which just rely on everything going perfectly. Well, that's not life. Uh, life is full of surprises. So we have to build slack into the system. That means you have to have redundancy. You have to have more than one person who's able to do another person's job, more than one facility that's able to do a certain kind of production. And so all of these are principles that we can build in. Uh, at the personal level, just to touch on that a little bit, uh, there's a lot of research on what it takes to be personally resilient. Part of it is actually being exposed to crises so that we get experience in understanding how resilient we can be. The fear of, of, of crisis and change is often much bigger than living through it. And so we find that we are adaptable and we can actually uh, um, get through these. Um, often it's about whether you've got a support system, so whether you have family, friends, or indeed an organization that can really support you if you're vulnerable so that you don't um, aren't uh, left in the lurch or falling uh, without any net. So social nets are also important. And then the one we touched on already, which is uh, purpose. You know, if you've got a strong belief in something, it carries you through the crisis uh, because you're, you're working for something larger uh, and you're uh, wanting to get to the other side. So many things we could say about uh, resilience, but it is a an essential thing for our time. And um, it's something I think, if we turn to business, that they're just learning about, I would say. Business is very good at very abrupt crises like an explosion, right? They have all the emergency response procedures. Not very good at less predictable and more long-term crises like climate change, where it's just getting worse and worse, but slow enough that it's not something that you have to react to immediately. And so that's really the trick is how can we build adaptation to that kind of crisis? Just in response, and to speak from lived experience, the two things that have sustained me the most, but one of which has got a double edge to it, you know, through these, these years of the pandemic and all of the, you know, sort of concussive waves, uh, you know, that, that it's put um, you know, pressure and stress on on me and, and our family here and, and, and on our business. The two things that have sustained me the most have been lived experience of, and let's just use the blanket term, crisis and purpose. And I think without uh, naming any names, but the, the people that I have seen adopt unanticipatedly sort of counter- sort of greater good behaviours uh, over this this stressful period have been those who actually probably haven't really endured much hardship at all in their life. And, that, you know, that this has been a real significant systemic shock to them, you know, to the extent that anecdotes of my sister-in-law's grandmother having a pat of butter wrenched out of her hands in a supermarket in Melbourne when they were going into their first lockdown because, you know, somebody who no doubt, you know, is normally a sort of a decent and civil individual, couldn't abide the thought of going home into some kind of, you know, extended shut-in in no doubt a very sort of luxurious abode by real-world standards, 
without a pack of butter. So she had to literally wrench that out of the hands of a 90 year old woman. I mean, like, these are not the behaviors of people who've endured much real significant life challenge. We have to realize that when people are fearful, they're not on their best uh, behavior, are they? And and we see this in the world today as uh, we, we see the rise of nationalism and uh, you know, this is all defensive behavior. This is people going back into what in South Africa we would call their lager, their uh, their sort of enclosure or put it, putting up their defenses. But we also have to realize that one key strategy for resilience is community, is to have solidarity. And we see that also, uh, I'm sure, through the through the pandemic. Yeah, hundred percent. There's a there's an initiative here on the ground that I'm involved in as a volunteer of community led resilience. And uh, I, I think, again, this has been something that has come home to roost for a lot of people in the pandemic, whether or not they actually had any kind of affinity with, let alone a, you know, a, a kind of a sustained relationship with their neighbours. And if you had, actually, at times, even a lockdown, you know, was kind of good in a way. It actually kind of gave you time and space and a, an ability to interact with these people. Um, if not, then it was extremely isolating, you know, really, really in an extreme way. Uh, so just on purpose, purpose, and we, you know, purpose is the theme that we speak about the most here. It was kind of the key topic of our very first conversation. And this is the one which for me has had a bit of a wicked double edge in that it has absolutely been the point of certainty to keep me getting out of bed, keep me moving, keep me driving forward and, you know, trying to sort of do the work I do and, and, and do that, you know, all for the, the intention of the common good. The experience that I've had is actually that the, the overextension of that can, and for me nearly did lead to burnout. And you see this an enormous amount, you know, with purposeful people. And this is why, again, you know, it's something we talk about a lot, um, you know, within our, uh, our collective that, you know, you need this flow between being all in yeah, and, and being all on just and being all on is is on yourself, and you you speak to this. So, I think yeah, it might seem like a bit of a an awkward juncture, but is this the moment to uh, to hop onto the leadership piece and unpack some of these themes and pull them more directly through the lens of how do we move from laggards to leaders? Yes, I think it is a good segue, but I just want to mention one thing before we leave resilience behind, which is that we we didn't talk much about nature, and uh, so. Nature has many parts to play in resilience. One, on the human factor, we know that spending time in nature actually is very good for our health and, and our well-being. And so I'm sure many people experienced this during lockdown or, or during the pandemic. If you could get out into nature, into a garden or into a park or into a forest, this actually helps us physically and, and emotionally and mentally to cope with stress. So I think that's one element Nature is actually extremely resilient because it has all of those principles that I talked about earlier. And so it, it naturally buffers a lot of change. But of course, it has its limits as well. And that's what we're, we're afraid of right now. If, if it gets over those, uh, those tipping points in a negative way, then we, we could uh, see collapsing ecosystems and runaway climate change and so on. But we do see uh, in nature, you know, many good examples of resilience and how we can use nature to improve our resilience. So for example, planting mangroves or, or restoring mangroves, you know, this uh, protects uh, local habitats for, for fish, for uh, 
the young fish that go out into the deepest oceans, but it also protects the coastal uh, areas against climate change. It protects the fishermen and their livelihoods. So we need to be thinking about nature as an ally in our need for resilience. Uh, Even if we talk about regenerative agriculture, this is a much more resilient way to do agriculture rather than the agro-industrial format, which is completely reliant on chemicals, uh, growing stuff in the dirt where there's no uh, life in the soil anymore. If you have uh, a regenerative agriculture and you have living soil, it's much more uh, resistant to drought, it's resistant to floods, uh, the, the crops uh, tend to, uh, to, to do better during crisis. So I uh, just wanted to, to pop that in and then uh, happy to, uh, to kick off on leadership and uh, maybe uh, to, to change up the style a little bit. Uh, I might throw in another poem here called To Lead, if that's okay. Please do, please do. I'm just going to add one thing, just while you, no doubt it's only a couple of clicks away, if you can't recite it by heart, because it is a brilliant piece. But uh, just on what you've just mentioned, because that that is, interestingly, the realm of systemic change that actually uh, sort of drew me into thinking more about my role and the work I, I, I do with leaders. Regenerative agriculture was a, a domain that I delved really you know, quite deeply into and following the bouncing ball took some time, took some years, but brought me to Carol Sanford's work on regenerative living systems. And, you know, I've now been uh, in one of Carol's um, change agent development groups for a couple of years. And that all started by reading um, or becoming aware of Josh Tykel's work. And um, I'm going to forget his surname now, but Dan, who has a restaurant in New York, uh, <laughs> um, called Blue Hill, I think it is. Anyway, the, the whole all of the, this regenerative agriculture movement. Um, and if anyone is also interested in this space, uh, we have Lauren Tucker coming on in a couple of episodes, who is one of the co-founders of Kiss the Ground, which is which is one of the, the sort of the early, well, basically sort of provocateurs uh, in trying to get more farmers to uh, to embrace this um, much more abundant, diverse, and infinitely resilient uh, way of uh, transforming the food system. So, yeah, again, it's another rabbit hole. We could dive down, 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 down. But uh, for the time being, please, absolutely, if, if you could read to lead, and, uh, and then we shall, uh, we shall progress again into our discussion. To lead... To lead or not to lead, that is the wrong question. For in our hour of need, it's what to lead that matters more, the core of values and their strength, the door of possibilities, the planted seeds and fruits they bear. It's there true leadership resides, for tides are changing quickly now. It's not the who, it's where and how. Leaders come and leaders go, but which will show a better way, a brighter day, because they led a lighter tread upon the earth, the birth of purpose in our lives and work in which our spirit thrives. Let's not ignore the children's voice. The choice is ours to lag or lead, to make the world more green and fair in ways that care, that hope and dare. 
Don't tell me that you lead, for I will never be impressed. It's how you lead that interests me and what you strive for without rest. It's where your dreams are taking us and who will thrive the best. It's why you lead that tells me more than all the feathers in your nest. To lead is nothing special for to serves the real test. To lead or not to lead. The question's quite absurd for leadership's the path that freed the slaves and we need so much more from shore to shore where chains remain and oceans rise Yet leaders' lies support charades and barricades that cling to glories of the past. Rise up new leaders who can shape a future that is built to last. Another beautiful piece and one with, I think, one sort of simple question uh, for me to invite you to respond to, which is how then should we lead? It is a question of looking for leaders that combine, I would say, a number of characteristics that are more suited to the challenges that we face. We've always had leaders, and leaders are always a a product of their time. And I sometimes use the example of, uh, uh, you know, Jack Welsh, who was really famed for his leadership of General Electric, but he was a, a win-at-all-costs leader. You had to be number one or two in your market segment or he shut you down as a business unit. Um, And, you know, the world was changing and uh, the leader who followed him was Jeff Immelt, came with a completely different leadership style, started investing hugely into what he called eco-imagination and health imagination, so health technology and, and environmental technology. Uh, The shareholders got very nervous at that. The share price dropped in the first uh, couple of months. Um, And uh, nevertheless, you know, he he said, uh, well, he's going to invest, you know, I think it was something like uh, $12 billion into environmental technology. That's a huge amount. Uh, And a couple of years later, they were making $200 billion in returns on, on that business. So, you know, I th- I think that uh, Jeff Immelt was an example of somebody who realized that the world had changed and that uh, bringing solutions to the world's biggest problems really is the purpose of business today. Somebody who realizes this, of course, uh, very well and, and who gave us a shining light was Paul Polman of Unilever with his sustainable living plan. And, um, you know, a lot of people don't know, but before he became a business leader in, in Unilever, he, he actually studied for the priesthood. And uh, it shows because he's very existential in, in his leadership style. He, he really believes that uh, companies have the power to make a positive difference. And if you're not out there solving uh, some of the world's biggest challenges, you really don't have a right to exist as a business anymore. So, you know, context is key uh, when we come to leadership and the realization that the context has changed, the challenges are much bigger and more urgent than we we have had in the past. And we need a different brand of leader to, to rise up and to take on those challenges. And I identify through research um, that we've done at Cambridge University through their Institute for Sustainability Leadership, as well as uh, 
research I've done through Antwerp Management School, where we've interviewed some of these leaders, I've distilled down six characteristics of uh, these leaders for thriving, if you like. Now, I don't know whether I may um, have come then across some of your work uh, within the um, High Impact Leadership course, which um, I did earlier this year at CISL and was then subsequently invited to contribute as an assessor um, to the the ongoing cohorts there. But rather than kind of potentially embarrass myself and, and take a stab at these, um, yeah, <laughs> what 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 are these you know, evidence-based attributes or, or capabilities and skills that leaders uh, either bring to the table or, or must nurture and, and, and foster in others? What, what are the six things that we need to look for and work with as leaders in this ongoing transformation? Yeah, so it's worth reflecting, in fact, uh, on what leadership means, and I'm sure you unpack this a lot in your podcast, but uh, if you go back to the etymological roots of the word leader, uh, and leadership, it really refers to a path or a road. Uh, and as a verb, it refers to to travel. So I, I always like that. It just means that to be a leader is to be somebody who can take us on a journey. And, um, you know, today, in order to do that successfully, you need, I think, a combination of these six characteristics. Uh, the first one is uh, systemic uh, characteristic. So this means that uh, we need leaders who can see the connections, who can see the bigger picture, who can see how climate change is affecting everything, how social justice uh, is is important to deal with. And by seeing the connections, they are then prepared to make investments that uh, respect the systemic nature of our problems, but also of our solutions. The second characteristic is to be inclusive. And this, again, is uh, something where we have to bust a few myths because we often think of leaders as being those highly charismatic uh, figures or personalities that we see on magazine covers and on the news, on chat show hosts and so on. Um, Whereas, in fact, many of the most effective leaders are the quiet leaders. Uh, Jim Collins uh, looked at uh, companies that had gone from good to great in the book of the same title, and he called these level five leaders. In fact, the charismatic leaders were level four, so they're not the most effective. The the leaders we need now are leaders that are actually self-aware, not as one of the uh, CEOs we interviewed said uh, uh, that most CEOs are egomaniacs. We need the opposite of that. Uh, so leaders that are self-aware and that are empathetic. So we're, we're talking about leaders with high emotional intelligence and who are prepared to empower others in order to get to where we need to get to. Of course, this includes uh, uh, encouraging diversity in teams and in organizations. So inclusive is the second. The third is strategic. Now, we might think that all uh, leaders are strategic uh, today, but in fact, many leaders are forced to be very short-term. The average life of a CEO, I think, is about three years, uh, of a politician is uh, maybe four or five. And so it's inevitable that many of them are being pressured to think and act very myopically for the short-term 
even worse, of course, when they are doing quarterly reporting. And one of the things that Paul Polman did when he came in and took over Unilever was to ban quarterly reporting. We need more of that kind of bold action. And then you get uh, um, leaders who are caring. So we have to not be shy to say that there is a moral and an ethical dimension to leading. We need people who are prepared to put their employees, their suppliers, other people, and even other creatures of nature first. Uh, I think we've seen some of this during the pandemic, to be honest. Uh, you know, many companies, many leaders of companies have actually put the health of their, of their workers first and uh, dealt with the economic consequences later. So being guided by a compass, I think, is, uh, is really important, a moral compass. And then we've got uh, innovative leaders. So, of course, we need leaders who are creative destroyers, who bring the innovation agenda to these problems, who are can-do solvers of uh, our most intractable challenges and who create an environment where, you know, people are not afraid to fail, which, of course, is uh, is often the case in, in organizations is people get punished for, for trying and failing. So that's, that's the next one. And then uh, finally, we need leaders who are courageous. We need uh, those who are prepared to create very ambitious strategic goals. And this is hard, you know, because often the leader won't know what the outcome might be or how we might even get to where we need to go. I remember uh, Ray Anderson, who was the CEO of Interface, another fantastic company to, to look at in terms of a thriving company. And when he set his uh, strategy of mission zero, which was literally to to uh, transform a carpet business, which is petrochemical intensive, into one that has zero negative environmental impact. He said that in 1994, and uh, people said he was round the bend. And he said, uh, exactly, that's what I have to do. I need to see around the bend, and I need to set a goal that makes people f catch their breath because it's so audacious. But then to give us the time to innovate and to to figure out how we're going to get there. Now, in fact, they thought actually originally it might take about five years <laughs> to do that. In the end, it's, uh, it took 25 years, so it ended up being a 2020 goal, and they got very, very close to that zero negative environmental impact. So courage, uh, I think, is, is that uh, last characteristic. So to summarize, we need uh, leaders who are systemic, inclusive, strategic, caring, innovative, and courageous. It's so interesting. Just was familiar with the with the list and what I've been trying to do since I read it was, and I'm fortunate I can say I came up with a few, but it's it's not a long list of leaders who I think are already personifying those attributes and those approaches. It definitely is not a typical list, even in this you know, moment. I, I think you know that in certain circles and certainly a lot of groups that I that I spend time in, hundred percent. You know, I think it would be a well endorsed you know, sort of approach, but not at most MBA schools, not in most leadership development programs, not, you know, sort of according to much, you know, not that I 
really pay much attention, but certainly not most business coaches, I think, are going to be endorsing those kind of behaviours. But uh, I wholeheartedly agree with them and uh, will put my hand up and say, you know, I, I try and you know, sort of live and breathe these, um, these things and, and have been doing really as long as I've, uh, yeah, found this, you know, this purposeful work. Yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting that you mentioned business schools because most of my work over my career has been with business schools and with MBAs and, and really, um, trying to bring these ideas and thoughts to that very practical audience. And I think, uh, we can probably put a lot of the problems of the world at the door of business schools, because certainly we had a generation of teaching young leaders that it was all about the money and that it was all about shareholder returns and it's all about short-term and competitive behavior. But I must say, having you know really worked a lot uh, all around the world with business schools now, it really has changed. And most credible business schools now are integrating thoughts around uh, sustainability into their programs. But, you know, the the danger is that it sits on the side and is taught as a kind of optional extra, a little bit like, uh, I remember George Monbiot, uh, I did an interview with him once, a fantastic uh, journalist, uh, writes for The Guardian. And, um, you know, we were talking about climate change and he said, uh, you know, climate change, tackling climate change, you know, it's a bit like we've got this big juicy um, burger, fast food, unhealthy, and we think that we can uh, we can improve our health by just having a little salad on the side. And of course, that's not true, right? We have to reduce, eliminate or re-engineer the burger and vastly increase the salad to to be healthy and it's it's the same sort of thought here is that uh, business schools need to completely integrate this into every subject that they teach and um fortunately i've been very successful with this with the support of our our dean at antwerp management school we created what we call a global leadership skills course that all the full-time master students do and uh, they, uh, it's compulsory, but it comprises of three elements. And the first one is self-awareness. So they work a lot with, you know, who are they, understanding themselves, uh, what are their, their, their traits and styles of leadership. And then the second component is around global perspectives. So they have to know how to work on a team, how to respect diversity, cultural and otherwise. And then the third element is societal consciousness, where we bring the sustainability. And, you know, I think that's the, the way we have to go. We have to make this about leading no matter what your discipline, whether you're in marketing or finance or supply chain operations, whatever it may be, there is a way to lead and to integrate thriving into that function and that way of leading. Well, let's hope that there's lots of deans of business schools listening to this, and uh, <laughs> they'll be uh, they'll be making sure that they're weaving all of this into their curriculum from well, 2022 onwards. A little shout out there because there's a fantastic organisation, and I declare I happen to sit on the board. But the Globally Responsible Leadership Initiative, the GRLI, is exactly that institution that brings together 
deans and directors from around the world uh, who are committed to this kind of leadership. And, uh, you know, they do fantastic work. We're just busy uh, putting together a program which will bring together seven institutions uh, from around the world to offer a course on globally responsible leadership for sustainable transformation. So I think it is happening for sure. And even the rating agencies, uh, which have a lot of power over over companies, are adapting or changing. The ratings themselves are starting to, to integrate these issues of impact, the importance of impact. There's one really good one called the positive impact rating, which is the students themselves rating the business schools on the extent to which they are creating a positive impact. There's a lot going on in this space. No, it's good to hear. And look, I mean, everything that we've mentioned so far, uh, we'll be sure to compile uh, links to all the books, you know, the documentary and all of these affiliate organizations. So all you need to do at this point, if you're interested in any of this stuff, is just scroll down and uh, and follow the links there. So conscious now of tenure of conversation more than anything else, I, what I would just like to touch on before we move to close is some of the outcomes. You know, let's come back to you know, being the the possibilists, if I can make this a, a mutual position now, what would you say is along the lines of what we could expect and what the journey may hold if you know, the, the approach to thriving that you've laid out and in laid out in real detail in the book uh, is adopted? What can we actually look forward to? It's going to be a future which is going to be so exciting and, and we will be so privileged to live through this transition because literally so many things will be getting better. I know the big worry now, of course, as it should be, is climate change. But I'm in absolutely no doubt that uh, fossil fuels will have their last gasp of breath in the next uh, decade or two. And renewables are simply becoming the most sensible economic option. They're cheaper in almost every country at a utility scale, uh, wind and solar. Combine it with batteries and other forms of renewable energy. It really is going to completely transform our energy system. And so we will be living in a future where energy is clean and is cheap. And once you have that, so many other things become possible. They're not all easy solutions. Uh, some industries like, uh, you know, the, the heavy industries, chemicals, cement, steel making and so on, will probably use green hydrogen, which is uh, using renewable energy to create hydrogen through electrolysis. And then the hydrogen itself um, powering those uh, crackers and, and smelters and so on. Here again, uh, lots of movement, lots of investment, and, and we will definitely see that expanding. Of course, when you're in a city that has fully electric cars, which we will have, uh, the automobile, the combustion engine is is on its way out within uh, probably a lot faster than people think within a decade or two. Many cities and countries are already banning the, the sale of uh, internal combustion engine cars as early as 2025 in the case of uh, Norway, uh, 2030 for many other countries and cities. So, um, you know, rapidly that will become the, uh, the clean mode of transport together with much, much better public transport. Cars will be banned from many cities as they're starting to be. And what we will see is a, is a revival of nature as we invest in regenerative agriculture. We'll bring nature back to the countryside with all its diversity. But also in the cities, we'll start to really green our cities 
with uh, with green walls, uh, with green roofs, uh, vertical farming, all of these solutions really making making our cities a place where we want to live and want to to be and to work and to have our leisure where we'll be transforming many highways into into parks and again i'm not just dreaming here everything i'm saying already has precedence uh, we'll see things like uh, mini forests in cities uh, micro forests and um we'll realize that uh, there is a much better way to build buildings, uh, a way that's not only net positive on energy, so uh, uh, that has no carbon footprint, actually uh, creates more energy than it uses, but is also um, uh, using uh, water that is completely recycled and is cleaner when it comes out of the building than when it falls on the roof. Um, and uh, that is also biophilic, meaning that uh, is is nature inspired and, and based on the love of nature. So using natural materials, which is a healthy and an inspiring workplace to be in. So I think uh, more and more uh, we will have workplaces that are places where we go more than uh, than to fully work. We, we go actually to create the social bonds, to do the teamwork, if you like, because, of course, so much more we will do online, as, as should be the case for meetings, uh, you know, that don't require us to fly or to, to travel in congested uh, uh, traffic jams. So uh, I think our way of working will, will change a lot, uh, will be far more flexible. But we will choose still to come together in these workspaces, which are, you know, full of, uh, of uh, you know, social spaces, uh, coffee shops and uh, waterfalls and mini forests, uh, parks, basically, where we will, we will come to work with colleagues. And then I think that uh, technology will just continue to, um, to give us more options. Uh, we will be able to have a transparent supply chain, we'll know exactly where everything comes from and whether it's uh, had any uh, any abuse in the supply chain. If there's a sustainability certification, we'll be able to track that using blockchain all the way through the process. We will be able to use, uh, whether it's artificial intelligence or other technologies, 3D printing will become standard, which will allow us to save huge amounts in uh, transport costs and energy uh, associated with that because many things we will simply download the design for and just print at home uh, or at the workplace where it's needed. And so I think 3D printing will also completely change our lives. Health-wise, I think we'll continue to make many, many medical breakthroughs. Um, I think uh, gene therapies are on the rise, but also, and I work with companies like Johnson & Johnson, a much bigger emphasis on preventative medicine or, uh, if you like, uh, ensuring that we stay healthy rather than uh, treating sickness with drugs. And so I think an, an emphasis on techniques like mindfulness and uh, healthy lifestyles. Diets will change completely. Uh, I do believe that the plant-based move to plant-based diets is is an unstoppable trend because it's it has so many benefits. The climate benefits are are massive. If you eat a meat burger um, compared to a let's say a Beyond or an Impossible plant-based burger, you have uh, more than ninety percent more impact on land, on water, and on carbon. Let alone the impact on animal welfare. Uh, alongside the move to plant-based diets, which will be rapid, 
many people don't know, China is already committed to uh, increase plant-based diets by 50% by 2030. That's massive. We will also see cultured meat replacing a lot of uh, farmed meat. This is a new trend and it's moving extremely fast. We just need to get the price down. But already in Singapore, you can go to a restaurant and, uh, and eat chicken that has been grown in a lab, essentially in big fats, like the same way we grow insulin that's fermented. This takes care of many of the sustainability impacts of uh, the meat industry. So as we free up land from livestock farming, which, by the way, uh, creates 2% of the, uh, of the protein that we produce and uses 60% of the agricultural land. So once we free up that land by moving to more plant-based and to cultured meat, uh, then we can restore that land. And so we should see the coming back of life, uh, of nature, of forests, of many species, many keystone species in the rewilding process will be intro introduced again. We may see wolves or whatever the uh, the uh, apex predators are that uh, are appropriate for the particular area that you live. And uh, it'll be a more exciting place to be. The same in the oceans. I think the oceans will, will become, uh, rather than a place for hunting, which is what it currently is, uh, uh, fishing is really hunting, will become more a place for farming because we know that uh, we can be very productive farming in the ocean. And in doing that, we absorb huge amounts of carbon through something like kelp farming, as an example, or, or oyster farming. So um, I think we'll see so many changes uh, in the world around us, but it'll get very intimate. It'll change the way we live, the way we work, the access that we have to people, to community, and to nature. And all of this is is not happening because we all suddenly become altruists. It's happening because of that convergence of forces. What we're seeing is a breakthrough in technologies. We're seeing these social movements, which are really, really important, that are putting the pressure on. We are seeing very bold policies coming, like the Green Deals. Uh, and, of course, we're seeing the market response where companies are realizing that this is, this is the growth area and this is where they can and will make their money. There will be winners and losers and uh, the companies that want to be winners will be the ones that invest in thriving. So, like I say, an exciting future ahead of us. It won't be without bumps in the road. It will be a turbulent uh, transition. Those that are in power will hang on to power as long as they can, like the fossil fuel industry. But the momentum is unstoppable. And I think the more that we share the knowledge that we now have, that thriving is, is possible uh, and that many of the solutions are already in existence, you know, the more it will spread rapidly and just become a no-brainer. And so, uh, yeah, I'm really looking forward to seeing uh, and to living through this transition. It is an exciting time to be alive and especially to be a leader. Well, I, for one, have a really embodied energy of fervent anticipation. I think it's fair to say, like you, I have a strong sense of certainty that in spite of the resistance, in spite of the traumas that you know will be endured, because there is a lot of calamity that is unfortunately locked in, uh, there is so much upside, there is so much that I think people will really run toward as soon as they can see you know, the benefit to them in their own life, in their own family, their own community, their own place, their own workspace, 
of everything that you've just described. And what I love the most about that story that you've told and that vision that you've painted for us is that I've seen, felt, tasted, and touched everything that you've just described at some point in my life over the last five years. You know, I've walked down greenways in cities. You know, I've seen, you know, buildings that essentially are, you know, a regenerative entity. You know, I had a Beyond Burger, you know, in a franchise burger joint in a shopping center like a week ago. All of this, every element that you've just touched on is happening right now. What we're waiting for is for the scaling, and that's where the opportunity lies for all of these organisations. So, thank you for that. That was uh, that was really bewitching to um, to just have that wash over me. It just triggered for me uh, that quote, you know, uh, the science fiction writer William uh, Gibson, who said, "The future is already here; it's just not evenly distributed, distributed. yet." Yeah. And yeah. and that's absolutely true. You know, we 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 already can see. Uh, what we need to do. But more than that, uh, things are scaling. You know, I've been waiting for 30 years for things to scale, and now they really, really are. And, um, you know, this is all about changing a very complex system. And when you go through those six principles underlying thriving, you can see all six of those principles at work, uh, creating the acceleration of positive change that we need. Uh, I did an analysis just uh, by way of example uh, of COP26, the climate meeting that we had in Glasgow a couple of months ago. And, uh, of course, there was a lot of hand-wringing and, uh, you know, despair from many about uh, uh, what happened there and what didn't happen there. And I analyzed it against the six elements, the six keys to thriving. And the conclusion is that it, it actually was a success because it's created all the right signals for that acceleration of change to happen. Uh, and so that's how we need to be thinking about change now is, is what is it that, uh, what are the dynamics of a complex system changing? It needs the convergence, it needs the coherence, it needs the complexity, it needs the continuity, it needs the circularity. But the good thing is that we're seeing all of those things. And then remember, change is not a straight line. It never is. We should have learned that through the pandemic, right? It's it's a it's an you know it's a hockey stick curve, it's exponential change, uh, it's a doubling time that is very rapid, and so we're just entering, I would say, the elbow of that hockey stick curve in terms of many of the changes that we want to see. And so, uh, with your permission, uh, since we're we're coming to a close, I might just end again with a few creative words. Uh, a poem called Change the World, because I think after all, that is what we're all trying to do in our own way. And that is all we have to do, by the way. Uh, we, we don't need to change the world, the whole world. All we need to do is to change our world, to change wherever we are with our sphere of influence, because once you do that, it ripples through the connected system and adds up and amplifies the change and then we get to that tipping point uh, where it happens very rapidly. I would absolutely love for the final words from you, uh, the parting words from you here, uh, to be of that wonderful verse. 
but I'm going to ask you to belay that just for a moment because before we do that, uh, I would invite you to direct anyone who wishes to that hasn't already scrolled down to the show notes where everything that you're about to describe lies. But where would you direct people to go that at this point in time, no doubt, are urgently wanting to know where they can go to find out more about you, get a copy of this book we've been referring to constantly, uh, and just engage as, as much as they can with everything that you're creating? Yeah, well, fortunately, I'm not very hard to find. So a simple search on my name will probably get you to where you need to be. But I have my own website, wayneviscer.com, and all the information about the book is there. Of course, you can also go directly to whichever retailer of reputable books you prefer because it really is available now already. Uh, it uh, gets published on the 8th of March. So uh, uh, pre-orders are already uh, available to be taken. Uh, it is also coming out as an audio book as a matter of interest. And so that's that's going to be another option as well of, as, of course, uh, the the ebook. But um, yeah, just do a, a search and I'm sure you, you'll find it. And uh, I do hope that uh, everybody uh, does uh, get a chance to enjoy it. Uh, I enjoyed writing it. It is uh, full of stories and uh, and and solutions, really, hundreds and hundreds of them, and uh, a lot of science behind it as well. And so, um, you know, I will just uh, add that uh, for uh, listeners of this podcast, uh, I will arrange uh, to give a thirty percent discount, and uh, so we will put that uh, uh, the way to access that in the show notes as well and of course don't hesitate uh, to to reach out to me um uh, via linkedin or or via the uh, the website i'm always interested to hear feedback um and in fact i have an idea which uh, i'm going to see what the response is first but um uh, i'm i'm keen that i might uh, curate uh, uh, a website or a group uh, i already set one up uh, in linkedin called thriving movement because this really has to become a movement. So what I would like in in the ideal world is for everybody to be sharing their stories of thriving practices, uh, whether that's cases or companies or products or experiences or your own insights from science, you know, and, and maybe use the book chapters as a way to structure that a little bit. But, you know, already I, I welcome anyone to join the LinkedIn group called Thriving Movement and to share you know, whatever they're seeing happening in the in their world around them that they think is inspiring and informative. And then maybe, uh, you know, if, if we get uh, enough of that interest, then uh, we can have a, a, a version two of the book which shares everybody's stories because I'm certainly not the, uh, the fount of all wisdom and uh, this needs to become a movement. And so any, any way that you can all help as listeners to turn it into a movement, that's, that's really my wish and my dream. Wow. Well, what an invitation. So again, scroll down, link to the LinkedIn group uh, is there in the show notes. So dive straight in. Uh, and yeah, I for one will, uh, will be making a contribution there as much as I have anything relevant to share, of course. Uh, so if you could uh, take us out with this, uh, well, final piece of verse for today, but do get the book. It's 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 definitely going to be, if not the, then certainly one of the books of 2022 for me, uh, as much of an endorsement as that is. So thank you for everything that you have created. Um, thank you for everything that you're doing, Wayne, to 
create our better world yourself and, and to enable others to do so. And uh, yeah, lead us out if you would. Thank you. It's uh, been a great pleasure to to be speaking with you today and to be interacting, uh, albeit at a virtual distance, with with all the listeners. So let's uh, end with uh, these few words. Change the world. Let's change the world. Let's shift it. Let's shake it and remake it. Let's rearrange the pieces, the patterns in the maze, the reason for our days in ways that make it better, in shades that make it brighter, that make the burden lighter. Because it's shared, because we dared to dream and then to sweat it, to make our mark and not regret it. Let's plant a seed and humbly say, I changed the world today. Let's change the world. Let's lift it. Let's take it and awake it. Let's challenge every leader, the citadels of power, the prisoners in the tower, the hour of needs upon us. It's time to raise our voices, to stand up for our choices, because it's right, because we fight for all that's just and fair, for a planet we can share. Let's join the cause and boldly say, we'll change the world today. Let's change the world. Let's love it. Let's hold it and unfold it. Let's redesign the future, the fate of earth and sky, the existential why. Let's fly to where there's hope, to where the world is greener, where air and water's cleaner, because it's smart to make a start to fix what we have broken, our children's wish unspoken. Let's be the ones who rise and say, we changed the world today. What a fantastic vision of the future. The future that exists today, but as discussed, is not evenly distributed. And what a very possible invitation to create a better world that meets Wayne's vision of what a better world might be like. I don't know about you, but I certainly welcome a vision or rather even an embodiment of that vision and to go out and actively create that. Now, if you have not already, then please do go and get this book. I was fortunate enough to have read at a very fast pace an advanced copy before I spoke to Wayne back in January 2022. And it is dense and practical and theoretical and real and creative and visionary and grounded in right here, right now. And for all of those reasons, I have reread it twice since recording this conversation with Wayne. And I suggest that you might benefit from doing the same. So do look up Thriving. Do order it. Do share it with as many people as you can. Uh, there is an audio book, I believe, out by now, if not coming soon, if you're more into you know, the audio-ness than the written-ness. But, you know, really, this, this, this is, you know, serious work and work that now I think is very convergent. I certainly see living systems uh, work everywhere I go. It's kind of the, the, 
the foundational architecture for everything that I do and, and, and the principles through which I you know, show up in the world to the best of my ability. And I, and I do agree with Wayne that this is possible. It is going to be hard. Let's not forget where this conversation started, confronting the brutal reality, but not giving up hope that a better world is possible to recite one of Wayne's opening comments. And I think there's a lot to be said for that, right? This work is hard. Danger is real. Fear is a choice, to quote from a not terribly good movie, in my opinion. But it stands up, right? And to, you know, one of Wayne's points, you know, we've spent years trying to scare people into action. Um, and at the moment, courage hasn't shown up to reconsider a point made by James McGregor in our last conversation of season four. Not for a lot of people, right? They've either avoided experiencing the fear or perhaps the fear has been overwhelming. But for more and more people, courage is rising and that is born out of optimism and born out of realisation that this better world is possible. So, question, question and reflection. What is possible in your world for you to do and make better? I would love to hear your thoughts on this. Standing invitation to respond. Drop me a comment, drop me a note. Come join the LinkedIn community. We are now over 400 members of that group. It's getting more participative. There will be places and spaces for you to show up and interact if you want to with me, with other guests and co-hosts and co-creators and with each other. There is stuff coming. We are aiming at an event in June, July. But in the meantime, what is possible in your world? What is there for you to do? I will leave that with you and look forward to the next conversation with the very wonderful systemic change agent that is Lauren Tucker. See you then. As always, great thanks and appreciation to the team who contributed to bringing better world leaders to you. To Brendan Ward for production of all audio recordings and composition and performance of original music throughout each episode. To Cooper and the team at Radio Hub Studios for technical support and creative guidance during the episodes that are recorded face-to-face. To Knock Knock Studios for website design, hosting, and advice and to Sarasa Design for logo and site graphics. You'll find audio and video recordings of this episode as well as links to any specific recommendations or related resources that were mentioned today in the podcast area of 4iLeadership.com backslash insights. This is the Better World Leaders podcast brought to you by 4i Leadership. 